This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, our hot question of the day today requires you to be honest about the level of participation and work that you do in your children's lives. I know it can be awkward, but it's a good thing that our hot question of the day is anonymous. So you don't actually have to admit to how much you do unless you choose to. So a recent poll, as we've been talking about, found that the majority of parents in the U.S. are still doing like really mundane tasks for their adult children, like reminding them of deadlines, texting them to wake them up in the morning, making their doctor's appointments for them. So we want to know what age were your kids when you let them start fending for themselves? Was it 16? Was it 18? Was it 20? Or have you still not stopped doing things for your children? Sarah 980 on Twitter is where you'll find that. You can email me, simi at cknw.com. Uh, leave a message on our buzz line. I'm sure you've got a story. You must have a story that you can tell me about something you either do for your kids that maybe you're not happy about that you still do this, or the story of the moment that you decided you weren't going to do this for your kids anymore. 604-331-BUZZ. That is 331-2899. Do you ever feel like, oh, I think I do too much for my kids. I think they're too old for me to be doing this. Or are you quite happily going along and still doing this for them in their early 20s, mid 20s, perhaps? Tell us that story because I would love to hear it. And if you don't want to, you know, put your name to it, that's cool too. Just tell me you don't want me to use your name, but just let us all enjoy your story. Send me at cknw.com. Use that buzz line 604-331-BUZZ. Well, the Insurance Bureau of Canada, as you've been hearing in the news, has once again taken aim at our auto insurance system here in BC. And once again, ICBC doesn't come out of it looking all that great. According to this new report, if you look at drivers and how they pay in BC versus Alberta, well, the Insurance Bureau of Canada says that the same driver could save a lot more money just by being on the other side of the Rockies. They're claiming the jurisdictions are similar, but they're also saying that the competition in Alberta is what makes a difference. What's also different about this report here uh, is that uh, ICBC is really doing a lot more pushback on this as well. So a little bit later on the show, we are going to be talking with the CEO of ICBC, uh, Nicholas Jimenez. He'll be joining us over the noon hour to also kind of push back against some of what we're hearing in this. But it goes back to that uh, age-old question when it comes to ICBC is, do we need more competition in this province. Now, you are also going to get the chance to weigh in on this discussion. If you'd like to email me, by all means, simi at cknw.com. But let's check in right now with Richard Zussman, who is our global news online legislative reporter who has been following this story, and he joins us now. Hi, Richard. Hi, Simi. Okay, so let's talk about this. You've been kind of examining this and taking a look at it. What did this report find out? Yeah, so what the report did is for the first time we had these uh, sort of apples-to-apples apples comparisons as they described it. MNP Accounting was tasked by the Insurance Bureau of Canada to look into this issue. And what they did is they found these different scenarios. And it was easy to understand and easy to explain. What they did is they built these typical people or families that go out and need to have car insurance. And they then took those people, they drove the same car, they had the same number of crashes, they used the car for the same reason. And then what they did is they took those uh, people and they 
went to ICBC and said, how much would it cost for insurance if I live in Surrey? And then they went to different private insurers in Alberta, averaged out the rates and said, this is what it would cost if you lived in Calgary. And the findings are, you know, a lot of people said, oh, I'm not surprised. I always knew that we paid more in BC than Alberta, but I think the average consumer will be surprised about the size of the gap. In some cases, we're talking about, you know, there was one case of a, a woman, uh, 26, drives her car for recreational use, and it was nearly $700 difference to be insured uh, in BC, in Surrey, compared to what it would cost in Calgary. Interesting. Okay, now I know ICBC has been doing a lot of pushback on this too, right? And one of the things that they have said is, oh, that our coverage is different, that you will get more. They have double the yeah. wage benefits, I think they said it, and, and just double the benefits, essentially. Yeah, so lots of pushback from ICBC on various different fronts. So they don't believe it's apples and apples. They The description that Nicholas Jimenez, the CEO of ICBC, gave to me was this is, you know, Audi A4 compared to a Honda Civic. You know, the performance is different. The drive is different. Everything is different, although they're both cars. And I think they were describing ICBC as the Audi, although he didn't say that specifically. Okay. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the fact is he says there's better benefits here. And then the other thing that both ICBC and Attorney General David Eby have been pointing out is the insurance system in Alberta is in shambles as well. And I think it's important to note, I think probably most listeners know this, but it's important to note the big difference between the two jurisdictions is Alberta has competition and BC does not. And the Insurance Bureau of Canada is strongly in favor of more competition. Uh, you know, you have to, to know that when you take, you know, consume this report, understanding it does come from a place of bias. They want right. to see more competition. But that's the big major difference. The rest of the system is pretty similar. And so Alberta is having a really tough time now. Uh, there's been advocacy work being done there by the Insurance Bureau of Canada to increase caps on uh, soft tissue injuries, which is, uh, you know, and the listener knows we have those coming in here in BC on April 1st, coming up pretty soon. Uh, and there also has been a lot of issues in Alberta around private insurers wanting to insure higher risk drivers. So those who are more likely to cause crashes, younger drivers, less experienced drivers, you know, the insurance companies don't often want to insure them uh, when they have choice on who they can insure because uh, with it comes a higher cost. ICBC doesn't differentiate, obviously, right? It's the only yeah. insurer. And no matter who you are as a driver, they will insure you. So those are the two big points that ICBC and the province both raised is Alberta's system is flawed as well. They have lots of problems. And uh, ICBC offers better benefits, although, again, there's disputes around that and the benefit system's changing. Isn't that interesting, though, Richard? Like, this is one of the few times that one of these reports has come out, uh, and I find that we're, there's more of a discussion about comparing apples to apples. Yeah, and, you know, this is one of the things. ICBC has long tried to make their product uncomparable, Right. The system in BC is different than any other system. So therefore you can't compare it anywhere else. You know, I think what's been done here by MNP accounting is a good opportunity for British Columbians to look and see what the other options are. Sure. All the options have flaws, but I think we're getting ready for a serious discussion here around privatization of insurance. And Andrew Wilkinson, the BC Liberal leader, came out last night in my story on the news hour, and again this morning in a video online, basically saying we need more competition. Is he willing to go all the way around privatizing yeah. ICBC? Not yet. 
But Simi, I wouldn't be surprised if the Liberals get there, and this could be a major, major issue that, you know, if it's 2021, the election, or if it's before then, this could be one of those major election issues. The current government pushing for ICBC with the reforms they've put in place, including not just the April 1st changes, but the changes in September where good drivers will pay less, bad drivers will pay more, potentially a lot more. And what's defined as a bad driver could easily be you or I. You know, there's... It's at-fault crashes. Well, speak for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) It's at-fault crashes. It's distracted driving tickets. It's, uh, you know, excessive speeding tickets. All of those things. 25% of people will pay less under the new system. That means 75% will pay either the same or more. Right. So, you know, those changes are coming. And the liberals are going to come and say, well, maybe we want more competition. Is it more competition in specific areas? I know Andrew Wilkinson's been talking about opening up uh, insurance for taxi and ride share to private insurers. Right. But it could be a push for even more, you know, private insurance across the board. Okay. So then that makes us really uh, a lot more, I guess, urgent for David Eby and for the NDP government then because all the stuff that they've been putting in place or getting ready to do over the last year, it has to pay off for them yeah. heading into the next election. It, it sure does. And, and when you look at the budget numbers from February, they're counting on it paying off. You know, they've forecast that they are going to be making money at ICBC within two fiscal years. And they're projected this year to lose a billion dollars. So they believe that these changes they're making, especially the ones coming up next month, will save them more than a billion dollars a year. They also have this cap on special reports uh, in injury settlement claims. That's already starting to save ICBC money. The question is, are they going to be able to save enough? Are we going to continue to see rate um, claims go up? Are we going to continue to see crashes go up? How does ICBC deal with that? We're going to start seeing those red light cameras set up uh, throughout the province uh, to catch people who are, you know, speeding through intersections, not stopping at the intersection. Uh, so all of those factors are coming in. And the real test is going to be, can this government start balancing the books at ICBC? And if they can't, you know, how will the liberals be able to right. convince the public privatization is a better solution? Okay, so a bit of a preview on that. All right, Richard, thank you. Simi, my pleasure as always. Thanks for having me. That is Richard Desmond, our Global News online legislative reporter. It has been quite the 48 hours in Ottawa. But then again, kind of been like that for almost two months now, hasn't it? This latest scenario saw former Treasury Board President Jane Philpott's interview with McLean's Magazine generating a lot of discussion, a lot of heated discussion and headlines this morning. It's even fueling opposition demands for more information on the SNC Lavalin controversy. So what did she say? Well, she told McLean's that there is, quote, much more to the story and that she has been prevented from discussing her concerns uh, through efforts by the Prime Minister's office to, quote, shut down the story. Meanwhile, Prime Minister being asked about this, he continues to dismiss calls for him to go further and to hear more from Jody Wilson-Raybould. He's still trying to move everybody forward with his nothing to see here. It's all over with. Let's get an update, though, on what has been going on there. Amanda Connolly joins us now, our Global News political reporter. Hi, Amanda. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, thanks so much for being here. So first off, what has the reaction been like to this uh, Jane Philpott interview with McLean's today? Well, what we've seen so far is really the Conservatives using this to, again, emphasize their calls that there needs to be more explanation and more uh, really kind of discovery of what actually happened behind the scenes here. So they're renewing their calls 
for Jody Wilson-Raybould to be allowed to speak further on this matter. They want to hear, uh, they, they basically are asking now a new committee as well, the, the, the House of Commons Ethics Committee, to consider this, and whether they can call her to testify at that committee and really explain what's going on here. But again, the Liberals control that committee, and so unless they're going to be willing to uh, vote for that motion that the Conservatives plan to put forward later today, if that still goes ahead, there's really, it's, it's a limited venue of opportunity for them to try and go through that avenue here, which is why we're seeing a lot of the filibusters that were, the, the filibuster activity right now. Yeah, let's talk about that because we saw cots, you know, being set up outside the House of Commons and everything overnight. What was going on? Yeah, so basically right now, the government is in the process of trying to pass what we call um, supplementary and interim estimates. They're kind of like bridge bills that fill the gap for funding between federal budgets. And because those are money bills, any failure of those to pass could trigger an election. So what the Conservatives are doing here is uh, basically opposing every single line of those estimates, forcing the Liberals to keep the majority of their members in the House for the last, coming up on 24 hours by the, the late afternoon today, or within the next couple of hours here. And... Again, they, they are doing that because the, the Liberals yesterday voted down a motion by them calling for Jody Wilson-Raybould to be allowed to speak more fully. And this is how they're saying that they only have really this venue to try and push the government on this and make it as difficult for them as possible to continue refusing to allow her to speak. And how did that go? I mean, that was like an all-nighter. You don't see that happen very often. Yeah, so this is actually the third time that we've seen this tactic used by the Conservatives. Uh, people might recall we saw this back in March 2018 over the Jaspal Atwal affair with the India trip. We saw it again in June where it was they were, the Conservatives were looking for more information about the carbon tax. And so they do have a record here of, of doing this over the past year. And it's been to mixed results. So with the Jaspal Atwal affair, we did see them get one of the things that they wanted out of that, which was to see Daniel Jean, the former National Security Advisor, come to committee and testify about that. With the carbon tax, they did not get what they wanted, which was really some specific information about costing on that. The Liberals didn't acquiesce to that, and it ended after about 12 hours. So we're really waiting to see here how far the Conservatives are going to push this, how long they're going to go. It could run anywhere up to 40 hours if they push through all of these opposing motions to the estimates that they have um, available to them. And we're seeing so far from Justin Trudeau uh, what appears to be a reluctance to do that. We heard him reject the the characterizations that former Treasury Board President Jody Wils- um, sorry, Jane Philpott had made to McLean's magazines earlier today. And it really leaves a lot up in the air as to where they're going to go next and how they plan to try and defuse this. Right. So do you get the impression that on the government side of this, they're just going to keep moving forward and hope that the rest of this stuff dies down? I mean, that seems to be the path that they're taking right now. Yeah. Again, it's, it's hard to say what they're thinking and kind of what's going on behind the scenes here. Uh, we do know that, again, it was serious enough uh, a couple of weeks ago for Justin Trudeau to cut short trips that he had planned to come back for an emergency strategy session in Ottawa. We'd been initially told at that time that he would issue kind of a statement of contrition, and we really didn't see that. So we've seen the prime minister kind of doubling down on his tone that nothing inappropriate happened here, that they were talking about jobs, that they should be expected to do that. But of course, we also saw today the CEO of SNC-Lavalin saying, we never raised the jobs issue with them. So you're getting a lot of conflicting yeah. narratives here. And that's I think, is why the Conservatives are continuing to push on this. Yeah. And you mentioned as well that not sure what's going to get done in the House of Commons today. So is the regular business kind of being pushed back because of what's happened? It is, yeah. So effectively, as of 10 a.m. Eastern time, so earlier, a couple of hours ago here, 
Uh, if the filibuster had not ended by that point, the rest of the agenda for the day in the House of Commons was wiped clean because according to, to the rules of the House, if you don't start by 10 a.m., it's technically still considered Wednesday in the House of Commons right now. That's kind of just how the rules work. And so all of the business that was scheduled for today has been effectively wiped away. We're seeing all of the committees one by one being cancelled. There are still a couple in the afternoon, particularly the Ethics Committee, that have not yet been cancelled. But without any kind of clear indication right now of how the Conservatives plan to wrap this up or signals that the Liberals will acquiesce, those really are in jeopardy at the moment. So it's hard to predict kind of even more than a couple of minutes in advance here what's happening. Okay, yeah, it sounds like you're going to be busy then today. So no word yet to how long this is going to go on for. So the really the, the kind of hard stop on the motions, they have 257 motions opposing individual lines of these estimates. Because of the way the timing for votes goes, those could last... Uh, anywhere up until 35 to 40 hours. So theoretically, you could see this stretch into Friday uh, around midday kind of Eastern Standard Time here. But again, you have a lot of MPs. We're kind of heading into a break week right now where MPs have plans to go back to their constituencies. They have flights booked, trains booked, travel booked. Again, meetings back home in their ridings yeah. as well with stakeholders. So I think, I think it would be um, potentially costly for them to have to rebook all of that. But again, we're really going to have to wait and see if that's that's a price that they're willing to pay. Well, Amanda, it's going to make your job very interesting today, isn't it? It certainly will. <laughs> okay, thanks for your time on this. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. That's Amanda Connolly, Global News political reporter in Ottawa. Well, our next guest needs your attention, and it's for a great cause, too. Uh, Kayla Ryer is jumping rope for Heart in an online fundraiser for the Heart and Stroke Foundation. Now, she may be nine years old, but already she has raised thousands of dollars, and she is one of the top online fundraisers for this event that they have ever had. So we're going to find out what got her motivated, find out more about this event. So we have a bunch of guests, actually, to talk about this with us. We have Kayla with us. Hi, Kayla. Hi. How are you? Good. Are you excited about jumping rope? Yeah. It's a lot of jumping rope, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it sure is. We've got her mom with us, Anita. Hi, Anita. Hi there. How did Kayla get started on this? Um, Well, I mean, it's a school initiative. So, I mean, jump rope for heart through school. And um, it actually kind of started, a a cousin of hers had done it. And, you know, that kind of got her to thinking and us to thinking um, about it. And she actually just messaged me one day uh, while I was at work and said, oh, when you come home, we have to go collecting money, right? And um, when I came home, she showed me all the the, uh, pamphlets and stuff that she got from school. And, you know, we just thought about... um, you know, doing it online and, you know, just through social media and sharing with friends and family. And yeah, it just started from there. And it kind of snowballed, didn't it? We also have Sasha Sai with us as a community coordinator for the Heart and Stroke Foundation. Hi, Sasha. Hi. Uh, what is this Jump Rope Heart? You've been doing it for quite a while. Uh, yes, the program has been on for 37 years um, all across Canada. And essentially the program's there to encourage kids to live healthy active lives and also teach social responsibility through fundraising. Okay, so how good is Kayla doing right now? She is doing amazing. Um, She's our top fundraiser in Canada. Um, She's raised $7,136 and her school, that puts her school in first place in BC as well with well over $11,000. So you are number one in Canada, Kayla. That's pretty good. How did you do that? Um, I set up an online fundraising page and wrote down how I was feeling and why it's important to me and I shared the link with my friends and family and also I shared it 
every day. I kept sharing updates and kept asking. I wasn't afraid to keep asking people to donate money. I think you have a future in sales. That's what you've got. If you weren't afraid to ask people to keep donating money. On a more serious note, Anita, though, like this obviously struck a chord for your family. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like what inspired your family to get involved in this? Well, definitely just um, um, Kayla's uh, dad passed away last year from uh, uh, a heart condition, so coronary artery disease. Um, I mean, he's only 36 years old. So, oh, so young. Um, you know, it's just really important for just the awareness. Uh, I know everyone sort of takes for granted and just health and lifestyle. It's something I'll do. But, um, you know, even for us as well, I mean, you know, I, I thought I was fairly active and, and, and all that. But, you know, even for myself and for the kids, you know, just taking a more you know, active approach and, you know, just healthy lifestyle and, and just awareness, right? And um, Did you I, learn so much afterwards? That Did it change? Has it changed your diet, how your family eats and what they do? Yeah, for sure. Um, um, you know, I've been, uh, I myself, I go to the gym more often and, you know, even just, you know, more, you know, involved in, um, you know, even just what they take for lunch and dinner and just being more prepared rather than just, you know, yeah, just, just, all those whatever things, right? happens or whatever and and just you know just balancing priorities and time right you know just changing the um i mean luckily i was able to change my mindset um quickly and um i mean really the most important thing is just the, you know the, the kids and yeah. you know, just living in the moment and being happy so now kayla did this were you thinking about your dad when you wanted to do this yeah yeah so you want to raise money to help other people yeah yeah, have you changed how you eat and stuff too? Are you more active now? Yeah. It's important, right? Mm-hmm. It really is. So uh, why don't you tell people where they can donate more money to you? Because that's what we want to get people to do, right? One way to find Kayla is to go to jumpropeforheart.ca um, and to donate directly to her page, you would look up Mitchell Elementary and click the one that is in Richmond, B.C., and you can type in her name, Kayla Rick R-I-A-R. And from there, you can donate straight to her page. Or you can donate to the school in general. Okay. How many schools do this? Um, in our area, which includes Vancouver, Richmond, Delta, the North Shore, all the way up to Whistler and the Sunshine Coast, we have 67 schools. Um, across Canada, it's approximately 4,000 schools. Okay, Kayla, see how you have done an amazing job on this. Are you ready? Like, how long are you going to have to jump rope for for this? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's going to be a lot, isn't it? Is she, are you ready to Anita stand there with her and be like, come on, Kayla, got to keep going? <laughs> for sure. Yeah? All right. Well, hopefully people will keep doing that. Listen, congratulations, Kayla. Thank you. You're doing a great job. And to find out more, you can head over to the, what was the website? Jump jumpropeforheart.ca that's the jump website or you can go to heartandstroke.ca for more information about our Heart and Stroke Foundation sounds good thanks everybody thank you Kayla's so adorable isn't she now you can help her out as I said there just check out their website jumpropeforheart.ca so you go on there and if you look under schools you can see there's a couple of Metro Vancouver schools that are doing very very well Mitchell Elementary which is uh, Kayla's school is right up there Uh, I think Ladner Elementary from my old hometown there also doing very well it's number two on the list Uh, so this is a great thing right to get kids involved so check it out if you can jumpropeforheart.ca 
Facebook knows a lot about you, including your passwords that let you do a lot of stuff. So we assume that they have security for this, right? Yes, we assume that. But check this story out. Turns out that for years, users' passwords were stored in a regular text document that could have been opened by anyone who worked at Facebook, as many as 20,000 people who may have had access to that. And how many people's passwords are we talking about here? Anywhere from 200 to 600 million Facebook users. Yeah, could have been your password that was wide open like that. How could this be allowed to happen? We're going to talk more about this now with the help of our guest, Alex Hammerstone, who's a cybersecurity expert and head of risk management at TrustedSec. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It seems like with Facebook that the hits just keep coming, don't it? Doesn't it? Well, it does seem that way, although with such a large organization, with such a a large reach, uh, such a global reach, I think you're going to end up seeing certain issues like this come up. Okay, so what happened here? Like, should people be, if you're a Facebook user, then should you be concerned about your security? Well, the answer is always yes. You know, for any user of, of, of the Internet or really any applications or anything at all, they should always be concerned with their security. I think one thing to note is obviously that, you know, they, they discovered this and, um, you know, are, are out in front of it and it hasn't gotten, uh, you know, they haven't, they haven't been released, these passwords. But it, it is something that's a little bit surprising in an organization that size and that sophisticated that they would be storing passwords in this manner. Yeah, so you were surprised by this. Uh, nothing surprises me anymore, to be honest with you. I've been <laughs> in this industry a long time. Um, but, but yes, I think, you know, Facebook uh, obviously has a lot of sophisticated programs in place and they have a lot of people there working every day, you know, to secure data. So, so it's really a little bit surprising to see this news. Yeah. Okay. So what is it that they're doing wrong these days, Alex? Because they're certainly suffering a crisis of confidence among consumers. Well, I think that may just be part of the size too. You know, it's that the larger you get and the more involved you are in, in different parts of everyone's lives, you know, certainly people will be looking for things uh, with your organization. Uh, you know, definitely, you know, one of the things that I always really uh, uh, push is that when you see, and I'm not saying there's a breach, when you see the breaches that, that come out, People oftentimes talk about the sizes of different breaches, and they always just talk about records. But what they tend to forget is that there are different types of data. So as a consumer, if you think about it, if you were to lose your credit card data, that might make for a bad day, right? You have to get a new credit card. But there are other types of data that are much different. So if you think about it, would you, you know, would somebody want their chat history released? So if your credit card gets, gets uh, uh, compromised, it might ruin your day. If your chat history gets released, you could ruin your whole life and the, the things that people have in there. So the types of data that they have are going to be much different and much more personal to people. That is so true. Like when you put it that way, though, Alex, it really, I think, underscores how much information that we are trusting a company like Facebook with. That's true. And, you know, the the fact of the matter is if you're not paying for something, then generally you are the product. Um, You know, whether it's a discounted product or a free product, oftentimes they're, you know, looking to get your information and, and, uh, you know, build a profile of you that they can sell advertising or sell to other advertisers. And really, the, the world has changed so quickly and so rapidly that there's just so much data out there about everybody and the way it's correlated and the way they've built profiles of everybody for advertising. And so it's just one of those things that you have to decide at some point, you know, do you want to be part of modern society and kind of share your data or do you want to kind of try to go live in a cabin and, and not share anything? So it's just a choice people need to make. <laughs> Are you telling me there's no middle ground? It's either I got to live in the cabin or I have to share everything? <laughs> Well, there's certainly a middle ground, you know, obviously being, you know, careful what you uh, say and do, you know, I, I try not to be paranoid. I try to, uh, you know, not, uh, you know, give in to fear. But really, if you think about it, you know, if you think about, you know, the breaches that we've seen over the years, 
you know, it's probably not a good idea to share, you know, very highly personal things or have very highly personal conversations, you know, in chats or really on, on any platform and maybe save those for, uh, you know, the telephone or in person. Yeah, because that, really, you know, once uh, you, you type something into a computer, it, it tends to live there forever. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering then. So, like, we, we like to see these stories and go, okay, look at Facebook, not protecting our information again. But how much of this is our fault for thinking that we can just put all this stuff out there and somebody's going to look the other way? Well, so it's, it's interesting because, you know, one of the most common questions that I get asked by people is, you know, how, how can I keep my data safe? And the fact of the matter is that most of your data you don't have. And even if you think about your health records, so, you know, unless you're keeping them printed out in a folder that you're putting underneath your mattress, you don't have them. You know, you're, they're at a health facility or they're at an application provider or they're somewhere else. So your data, you know, these days is really only as secure as how, uh, you know, how, how secure the people that you give that data to keep it. So it's really kind of interesting is that while there are certain things that we can all do to protect our accounts, once we give our data to somebody else, it's really just in their hands. Okay, well, how do you protect yourself online? Well, so, you know, I try to just kind of be a member of modern society and, and uh, you know, use the services that make life more convenient. But, you know, protecting your accounts, you know, things like, like passwords, you know, if you can use passphrases, you know, so you can use really long sentences, you know, a song lyric or something, uh, um, not reusing your passwords. So if you remember, there's, there have been some breaches in the past where, you know, hackers were able to see kind of the username and passwords that were used on one site. And if you took those username and password combinations and went and tried them on other sites, including banking sites, they were able to get into a lot of those. So making sure that you're not using the same passwords everywhere, um, you know, but, but really, I, I think that it, it takes, uh, you want to be somewhere in the middle, which is, you know, not worry every second, but also be just smart about what you're doing. That's really tough for people these days, isn't it, though? Because we rely on the internet for everything, and it seems to want more and more information from us. It does. And it, it's just, if you start to think about it, it's just, every, it's everything, you know, yeah. your phone is always with you. So your phone knows where you go, you know, it, it, it knows, uh where you shop. And then if you have your, you know, your shopper cards, they know what you're buying and, you know, all the credit card companies know what you buy and where you go. And then, you know, your, uh, you know, your chats and your phone calls and just everything is, you know, in these databases and is able to be correlated. And really there's almost, uh, it's really difficult these days to have any privacy. It is. Okay. But we should keep trying though, right? Like we shouldn't necessarily just rely on these companies to be private for us. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think, you know, regardless of where you are, whether you're in uh, Canada or the U.S., I think that what will probably happen is down the road, we're probably going to look at some more regulation will be coming out, is my guess. Huh? You know, just because I think that um, it's just the, everything's moved so quickly and, and technology has moved so fast and data has changed so much that the laws really haven't kept up with it. And, you know, we did see kind of the GDPR in Europe and there's a, a law coming in the U.S. and California that's going to um, have a lot more privacy requirements. But I think down the road, the government's probably going to step in. But for now, it really comes down to, you know, just kind of making sure that if you don't want something, uh, you know, public, then don't share it. That's good advice. Alex, thank you. Thank you very much. That is Alex Hammerstone, a cybersecurity expert and head of risk management at TrustedSec. All right, let's talk about our auto insurance, because as always, it is a hot topic. And today, it's all about the discussion between BC and Alberta. There's this new report from the Insurance Bureau of Canada, and what they did was they showed that the same driver could save hundreds of dollars, according to the Insurance Bureau, uh, if they were on the other side of the Rockies rather than right here in BC. They tried to measure the same thing, same kind of car, uh, you know, living in the same place, same driving record, and that's what they ended up with. 
Now, this has obviously sparked a lot of discussion, lots of pushback from ICBC too, which we'll get to in just a moment. But certainly the opposition has jumped on this. Uh, BC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson says this means it is time to open up the market to more insurance providers. I think the problem is that British Columbians deserve to have a choice in auto insurance. What we're being told by David Eby again and again is he's got the master fix and he's going to tell us how it works. And I look at this and say, well, I moved here from Alberta 30-odd years ago. Insurance is more expensive in British Columbia. Why can't we have a choice? Why can't drivers here have every option put on the table for them? And then we can figure out which ones are the two or three best ones, and then drivers could choose amongst them. Instead, we have this 46-year-old state-run monopoly, and David Eby keeps propping it up and telling judges what to think, and they don't do what they're told, as Casey hasn't noticed, and we just keep fumbling along. That is Andrew Wilkinson. He was on with our John McComb this morning. So let's hear what ICBC has to say about this. Joining us now is Nicholas Jimenez, who is the CEO of ICBC. Thank you very much for being here. Hey, good afternoon, Sammy. Now, Nicholas, what is it that ICBC ratepayers are getting that is worth paying more money than what they're getting in Alberta? Well, I mean, this is the problem with a report like that. And I, I mean, I, I understand people really like the idea of comparisons, but um, they're often overly simplistic and they they kind of miss the point. And in this case, you know, they're missing a couple of big points. One is it's an entirely different product. Uh, and I know they'll say it's not, but it is. And that's that, there's just no way you can debate that. Um, you know, and I'll give you an example. We pay uh, <clears throat> accident benefits uh, at 300000 In Alberta, it's 50000 And we pay death, be- <clears throat> excuse me, death benefits uh, three times higher here than in Alberta. Your weekly wage benefits are two times higher here than Alberta. You know, and then you layer in things like, you know, our geography. It's pretty different driving in British Columbia than it is in Alberta. And then you layer in things like our legal system, uh, in our case law, in our tort environment. And as you know, and we've talked about this before, um, legal costs are what drive uh, a lot of the sort of the unsustainability of premiums here. So it's just, it's it's difficult. And I think they're not doing uh, much to inform this debate with reports like this. So are they looking at just, oh, there is death death benefit coverage and there is wage benefit coverage, but you're saying that ICBC provides more of those things? It's a much richer product. I mean, it's like comparing cars. I mean, you can, you know, a Honda Civic versus an Audi A4. Uh, They're both sedans. They both have four doors, but they're very different products. Uh, And so does one, you know, look different than the other when it comes to the the purchase price? You bet. Um, And and, and the same is true for insurance. You kind of get what you pay for. Now, sorry, I'll stop. Okay, I was going to say then, well, if that's the case, then do we need all of those things? I mean, if people in Alberta are making do with less coverage like that, then do we need all those things? And would that mean that we would get cheaper insurance? Well, I think that's fair. I mean, I think I think you need them when you need them. And I think when people are injured in a crash, you know, they uh, $50,000 goes pretty darn quick uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, health care benefits and accident benefits. Uh, and and uh, quite frankly, I want a product that's going to be there in that rare circumstance when I actually need to use it. And I don't want to be sweating the details on whether I can afford home modifications or whether I can afford the wheelchair that I need or whether I have to go with some other model or whether I can't get one at all and I've got to dip into my own personal savings in order to get that, you know, that that thing that I need. That's why you buy insurance. It's the same for home insurance as as it is any other form of insurance. Um, But can't ICBC maybe provide for a more 
a, a slimmer down product that maybe not the Audi, maybe people want the Honda Civic of insurance <laughs> and they want it to pay less and they're willing to take fewer benefits for it. Like, can we not provide that product to people? Yeah, you know, I think that's, that's, a, that's a really good question. I mean, I, I, my job is, is ICBC is to kind of work with the system I'm given. Um, and I think, you know, as you know, the, the product limits are set, you know, within, within legislation or regulation. So, so I think those are fair questions to ask. They're, they're not necessarily uh, the things that I can determine of myself because that's public policy. So, um, but certainly a fair question to ask. Right. Because I know what people will do. They'll take the cheapest option, right? They will. They'll they just will. look until at it, they'll they take it, it and they're, until they need it. That's right. But at that point, and if then, that's what they've chosen, then that's what they've chosen. If they want the consequences of that, they're going to have to live with that. No, no, I don't disagree. Uh, I mean, one thing I will say, and again, it's not really brought up in this report, um, is that we're making pretty profound changes to the way we do insurance ratings. So come September, uh, we're going to fundamentally reshift the way we slice up the insurance pie. Uh, and we're going to allocate more of that cost to high-risk drivers and obviously less to low-risk drivers. So, you know, 20, up to about a quarter of drivers are going to pay less. Uh, come September 1st uh, for insurance because of the changes we're making. If you bundle it all together, about three quarters are going to pay less than the 6.3% rate increase we put forward this year. So we are, we are making really sizable changes based on customer feedback, based on all the things they've told us, which is charge high-risk drivers more. Uh, and we agree. Right. Uh, and that's what we're doing. And, and that's what people will see. Will people notice that, though? Will they be able to go, oh, look, it went down from last year because they certainly notice it when it goes up? They do. A quarter will. Uh, there will be a quarter of our drivers who will be paying less uh, than they were uh, currently. Uh, so 25% of British Columbians, I think they're going to see a big change. Uh, and I think that's, that's a change people have been asking for. Okay, so what about the idea, though, of offering more product? Is that something that could perhaps be under consideration in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that, that's certainly things uh, that are worth talking about. I mean, you know, people forget that uh, you actually have a lot of choice in your insurance today. So, uh, you know, you have two parts of what you buy. You have that mandatory product, and then you have all those optional coverages. And you don't have to buy optional. You don't have to buy it from ICBC. 40% of the entire market is is competitive already. So people say it should be more privatization. Well, you know, almost half of our, of our industry is privatized, uh, and we compete and win uh, about 90% of that business. And within that, you have the choice of buying from us, buying from somebody else or not buying at all. And if you do choose to buy from us, you have lots of choices about what kind of coverage you buy and what kind of deductibles you have and what additional products you want or don't want. So there's, there is a lot of choice out there in the market right now. The, the one thing you don't have choice for is that one thing that, uh, that the province has said, look, we think it's important. Everyone has access to benefits to cover themselves when they're in an injury, uh, when they're in a crash, and that provides minimum levels of liability when they get sued uh, when they caused a crash and injured somebody else. So the government's basically said there's good public policy reasons for certain kind of coverage, and we're going to mandate certain levels. If you look across the country, there's reasonable parity for some of that. <clears throat> there's differences between BC and Alberta because we have, uh, we've made a decision that uh, we want to offer different levels of benefits. Okay, is it possible then maybe people need to take a look at that coverage? Like we all automatically get the renewal and we pay it, but perhaps there's people out there who are paying just for too much coverage. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and this is true. So, for example, if you own a, a, an older car, and a lot of customers do, the average age uh, of a car in BC is about 12, 12 years. So if you own a really old car, 
chances are you probably don't need a lot of collision uh, coverage uh, because the value of your car might be really low, two or right. three thousand. So you have, you know, the choice or the opportunity to sit and talk with your broker and say, you know what, do I need to spend the one or two hundred dollars uh, buying collision coverage? Maybe not. Uh, and then you can talk about, you know, your risk tolerance. So a lot of our customers buy two to three million dollars of uh, liability, uh, excess liability. Again, that's an expensive product, and it's it's there for a reason because you have. You know, in this, this jurisdiction, uh, the right to be sued uh, when you cause harm to somebody else. But you can make a judgment that says, you know what, I'm willing to take more risk. Maybe I only want a million dollars or maybe, you know, maybe I want something less. So that is a conversation we definitely encourage people to have with their broker. Right. So that could be a savings for people there if they went through their insurance that way. Absolutely. And we've got more savings. So come September 1st, we're bringing in new discounts that weren't previously available to people. So if you're someone who doesn't drive very often because you take transit or you have a second car that you only use on special occasions, um, you have the option, you have the opportunity to be eligible for a 10% discount uh, on, on your coverage. And the same thing is true if you buy a safe vehicle that has automatic emergency braking. So you have the option of getting a 10% discount uh, if your car has that feature. So we're going to be looking at doing more of these kinds of things in the future to give people who make choices in their lives to make them less, make themselves less risky. Um, you shouldn't have to pay as much. Uh, and there should be different options and choices available to you. Do you think that like a year from now, how do you envision this looking? <laughs> like, are people going to be uh, happier with their product, do you think? Or are you still going to be hearing complaints? Well, I mean, it's insurance. I think people, <laughs> I don't know anybody who, you know, is really happy anytime they buy insurance, whether that's insurance on their home or insurance on their car, insurance for their business. Um, so it's not the kind of product that people can see or touch. And like I said, the only time they value it is when they use it. Um, so, no, I think we'll always be talking about insurance. But I think a couple of things are really materially changing that I hope people do recognize. One is what we've just talked about, how Premiums are going to change come September. The other one is a change that's happening in 10 days. So we're changing to uh, the product to essentially reorient it away from, you know, this litigious kind of maximize your claim uh, circumstance that we have today to one that's really focused on getting people kind of more access to benefits so that they can get uh, on the road to recovery quicker. And that's a huge shift. It's probably the biggest change to the product that we've made in 45 years, and it's trying to reorient the system to injury recovery. Uh, and so we're pouring a ton of time uh, and effort and, quite frankly, uh, resources into making sure that if you're injured, you have unobstructed access to the care you need. We want to get out of the way uh, so that you can work with your doctor and get access to the benefits. You're getting access to more benefits, mm-hmm. uh, more treatment providers, uh, more often if you need them, without ICBC being there. Uh, so that you can get on the road to recovery. So that's a big change. And I think if you're injured after April 1st, you're going to see a big difference. And I'm hoping in a year people are saying, wow, that felt a lot different uh, than you know what I've heard other people go through or the last time I had an injury five, 10 years ago. Well, Nicholas, uh, regardless, I'm sure we're going to be talking to you about it on the air. So thank <laughs> sure you for will. joining us. Okay, thanks, Jimmy. Have a good afternoon. You too. That is Nicholas Jimenez. He's the CEO of ICBC. Well, today we've been talking about 
overfunctioning. And mainly we were talking about it from a parental perspective. And now there's the new term, right? Snowplow parenting. For years, we talked about helicopter parenting. Now we talk about snowplow parenting. It's where parents essentially push all the obstacles out of the way in front of their children. Recent poll found the majority of U.S. parents are still doing kind of mundane tasks for their adult kids, like reminding them of deadlines, texting them in the morning to make sure they're awake when they're at college and university, making their appointments for them, like doctors appointments, that kind of stuff. But here's the thing. Many people out there know this is not a problem that is just for millennials. Lots of older people as well, perhaps have this functioning in their relationships as well. Maybe you're one of those people who really relies on your spouse to manage your schedule, make sure dinner is there, there's fr- there's food in the refrigerator, run the errands, do all the chores in the house. Stop me when this starts to get familiar for you because I know a lot of people out there are probably agreeing with me right now because that's what came up when we started talking about this uh, in our little work pod today. So we wanted to talk about that part of this too. Helicopter spouses. And how do you deal with that? The spouse who feels like they have to do everything. Well, joining us now is Susan Wenzel, who's a relationship expert and sex therapist. She's on the phone from Winnipeg. Hi, Susan. Hi, hi. thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for being here. Is this something that you hear about, like when you're talking to couples, is there usually one person who feels like they have to do everything? Absolutely. I hear it all the time in the session with my client where some somebody will be saying, hey, I do everything at home and it's becoming tiring and I want my spouse to step up. I want them to start being responsible or to help around the house or just being part of the house. <laughs> just be like, what are, the, some, what are some of the complaints you hear? Like, what are people having to do? And, and you just mentioned they'll be saying, I cook, I do, I, I make an appointment, I even make a date night. So there's one person that is doing all that and the other person is just saying, no, I don't do that. You you make a date night. And, and now it becomes very tiring for one person and their needs are not being met. It feels that, yeah, it's easy for one partner, partner to feel that they're investing more than their spouse and it always leads to resentment in right. the relationship. But then how mm-hmm. do you bridge that with the other spouse who probably feels like, well, I didn't ask you to do all this stuff for me. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it would be very hard for them to suddenly be like, well, what do you mean I have to start doing stuff? Nobody complained before. I, I would say the first thing you should do is set boundaries from are your own in your relationship. Because we teach people how to teach us and, and how to treat us. I mean, we teach people how to treat us and we don't send healthy boundaries. They would just be, we went, and I think uh, we are creatures of habit and we will become dependent on our partner if they are doing everything for us. If they say no, they never say no to us, we become dependent on that. So setting a healthy boundaries, and I always say it's healthy boundaries that create connection rather than disconnect. A healthy uh, a boundaries, not where you just say no, but you say, honey, if you don't help with this, you might not get this. Or this. This caused me to feel this way. So a healthy boundary that's not pushing the other person, but actually creating connection, but also teaching your partner that this is the way I want to be treated. I want a partnership in this relationship. Okay. We can't, yeah, Uh, like we can't, go ahead. I was going to say, well, Susan, you're talking about early in the relationship. Let's just say Mm -hmm. that ship has sailed. Okay. Let's say that now it's well into this relationship. (laughs) Like we're talking years into this relationship and the spouse who's doing everything says, this has to change. How do you bring that up? And how, how do you make that conversation happen? 
um, setting, I guess, boundaries we can't set at any time in the relationship. It's never too late to set boundaries. And I would say just learning to say no, that would help. Um, we can't control our partner because we have, no, uh, we have no power to control others, but we can set our own boundaries to say, because I don't like this way, this will be the consequences. Uh, if, you want, if, if you want connection with me, that means we need to go for date night. Otherwise, there's no other connection. So you're setting the boundaries. Right. And, um, being very clear, boundaries that are very clear. And also on top of boundaries, learning to negotiate, learning to meet in the middle. That would help. Okay. We have to ask though too, right, Susan? Like that's Mm -hmm. the thing. Sometimes we want people to Mm -hmm. read our minds and people are not mind readers. No, they're not. And so we have to communicate and we have to communicate in the other person in mind. Uh, For me with my partner, it always works. If I want something happens, I always bring with, when you do this, this is what you're going to get that is beneficial to you. So I already uh, try to to bring, and that's negotiation we do at work. You know, when we want something passed, we say, I'll be really good at this if you hmm. do this. So that may help. That's a matter of negotiation. I'm not only saying what I want, but I'm also saying what you're going to get out of that, what would benefit you. All right, we'll have to see if that's going to so work. For, yeah, for example, if you, if you wash dishes tonight, that's mean we can have more time to cuddle later on at nine okay if if you take the kids out there that means we can be able to feel closer and bonded together hmm i'd like to see somebody try this see if it works susan thank you so much for your time on this today appreciate that you're welcome thank you that is susan wenzel relationship expert clearly relationship uh glass half full person as well right like for sure a lot of negotiations going on these days between the provincial government and different organizations. But one area that has been settled, dealing with doctors. There is a tentative agreement. It goes into effect on April the 1st. And it's an agreement that we should all be keeping our eyes on because the BC Teachers Federation and the provincial government also set to start their talk. So what do these things have to do with each other? That's what we're going to ask. Keith Baldry, our Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief, joins us now. Hi, Keith. Hi, to me. Okay, I was reading your piece about this last night. It was very interesting. Tell us about this doctor's contract. Yeah, so it's a three-year deal, uh, and it's worth $331 million a year. The background of this is the government has set a a wage negotiating mandate uh, that calls a maximum of 2% a year plus potentially 0.25% a year if you can find some savings for three years. So that is up to roughly 6%. The doctors were able to get a contract that lifts their total compensation base by 8.8%. Government explains to me they consider 6% of that, six points of it, to be the age negotiating uh, mandate, uh, no different than other unions. But they did agree the doctors are getting about 2.8% further for benefits and business expenses. On top of that, and this is where I think it's, it's going to have some people raising eyebrows, every doctor, any doctor, who, and every doctor who earned at least $75,000 in any of the previous three years, which is basically probably 90% of the doctors, will get a $7,500 uh, signing payment upon ratification. Every doctor gets a check for $7,500. The, the uh, doctors of BC and the government say that's to cover rising business expenses. As far as I can tell, there's no strings attached to that. They can either spend it on uh, business expenses or they can go to Hawaii or whatever they want to do with that money. 
And there's also a new uh, business premium that's going to be established to pay doctors extra money to cover things like you know, just routine examinations in their offices, uh, counseling services, and the like. That could be worth thousands of dollars. So it's a contract that's certainly probably the richest contract negotiated yet. And keep in mind, the Doctors of BC is not a union. Mm-hmm. It's basically an organization made up of, of uh private business people. I mean, that's their business, by and large, those who have their own offices, as well as physicians who work in clinics or uh, work on salary in some of these new urgent uh, primary care uh, centers. So it's an interesting contract from many points of view, not the least of which is if you're the BC Teachers Federation negotiator. And in fact, I talked to Terry Mooring, their, their new president yesterday, who was quite interested in this document from the doctors of BC. And she thinks it gives them optimism that not that they can achieve what the doctors achieved at the negotiating table, but the fact that the government recognized there are sort of expenses outside of uh, normal operations that should be covered by uh, through outside of the 2-2-2 two, two, gives her hope, potentially on one angle at least, that teachers pay out of their pocket for a lot of expenses in the classroom and have been doing so for years. And does this signal perhaps the chance to establish a, a way for teachers to recoup that money? Because uh, doctors have been given the chance to do just that. Right. And also interesting with the doctor's contract is that it sounds like they're offering incentives then for doctors to spend more time time with patients, like more counseling services, you were saying? Incentives are a number of things. Yeah, that as well as there's long been incentives to relocate in, in the sort of underutilized, underserviced areas in rural rural areas. What's happening now is actually it's getting harder to get doctors to come into Metro Vancouver, like so many other professions. It's so expensive. And the other thing that's happening, and it's reflected in this negotiating uh, negotiations in this contract, is the lease uh, costs and, and rents for doctors. We've talked uh, many times on the show, you've had lots of guests talking about yeah. rent problems in oh, Metro yeah. Vancouver. Well, doctors don't own their doctor's offices. They rent them or they lease them. And those costs have become going up and up and up over several years. And that's why there's a big emphasis in this, in this contract on business expenses and other incentives to do things differently. And doctors have bought into a lot of the changes. There's more and more going on, uh, on, on uh, salary rather than fee-for-service. But again, it's going to be interesting to see the impact if any, is going to have on the BC Teachers Federation talks. Talks there begin in earnest on April 1st. They've already met 20 times, Terry Maureen says, but they've got 40 sessions scheduled between now and June 30th when the contract ends. She's optimistic they can get a deal, but I think the, the fact that doctors were able to get so much from the government uh, bolsters the TF chances to get yeah. more than just two, two, and two. I mean, doc, to be clear, teachers are not doctors, um, yeah. and there's a big difference there, but in terms of unique professions, uh, the teachers have always made the case they're not like a lot of other public sector unions. The skill set they bring and the services they perform are, um, you could argue, more valued, and they want to see that reflected at the contract. Well, I, I actually think there's more optimism in this round of talks now than there was in the last two or three previous rounds. Really? So are they looking, then are teachers looking for incentives as well, because I know we've talked shortages, right? They want to yeah. see more teachers brought in. They need some more help with that. So are they looking for a push for that? Yes, Terry Maureen is a big part of what she wants to bring to the table, she tells me, is to address the the uh, attracting teachers and retaining them, it's particularly in places where it's hard to get people to locate. We, there was a story she told us, I think there's a, there a 19-year-old French immersion teacher, one year out of high school teaching in Williams Lake, because they can't find anybody to, uh, to be a French immersion teacher. She can speak French, and she was a good, talented student, but she was not got the university training. But there are a number of instances around the interior in the north where people who actually 
aren't certified teachers are teaching because of the shortage of people. But you need financial incentives to get people to relocate. They're certainly doing it with the doctors on a number of fronts, and I think you're going to see the TF push for that as well. Her predecessor, or outgoing president, Glenn Hansman, has talked about things like uh, moving allowances for teachers, relocation allowances, uh, other types of incentives to get people to come to BC and to go to places where there's a teacher shortage. Right. That sounds a lot like the doctors. You're right. Yeah, and I think it's two professions you can argue where you we've got shortage of specialties. I mean, teachers again are not doctors, but they do have a specialized service, and they're, they are needed in every part of the province. And I think the, the I think the TF Tan has been strengthened a little bit here, partly because of the doctor's contract, but also because there is a new government in charge here that is certainly more sympathetic, I think, to the plight of teachers than the previous government was. And I think you're going to see that reflected at the negotiating table. Hopefully, I don't think anybody wants to see another teacher strike, least of all. No. The teachers. No, no, no. Uh, but the doctors thing also, I was noticing, you're so right about them being on board, right? Like even today with the announcement by the health minister of more urgent care primary centers in Burnaby and things like doctors are very much on board with a lot of these big changes. They are. And then to, to credit to the Liberals, some of this began on their watch where they brought doctors in as so, almost a co-management uh, system rather than the fights we saw in the 90s uh, in the early uh, 2000s. The doctors were, were to come in and it's also in this contract, a whole bunch of committees that are controlled and run by doctors have been given a whole bunch of more money as part of this contract. And that eases the workload, improves the quality of life, and improves uh, services. So uh, you couple that with Adrian Dix's uh, somewhat transformative changes that he's bringing in, and you've got, yeah, doctors, I think, are going to be pleased, are showing that they're pleased with the changes in healthcare. Uh, There are going to be doctors who think the contract falls short of what they need, but I think, uh, by and large, this contract delivers to them on a number of levels. Interesting. Keith, thank you so much. Take care. Have a good day. That is Keith. Keith Baldry, our Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief.